Hey everyone, you're now part of the B2B Power Hour and I'm your host, Nicholas Dickett. I'm Morgan Smith. We help sales professionals power up their sales skills from first touch to revenue, one hour at a time. Join us for weekly live shows and interviews with industry experts breaking down what works and what doesn't in the remote sales era. Now, on to today's episode. Today on the B2B Power Hour, I'll be talking to Leah DiBello, Principal Scientist at Applied Cognitive Science Labs, the owners of the FutureView platform. I was first introduced to Leah through Common Cog, a blog that you guys may have heard of. Your book, Accelerated Expertise, caught my eye. And the biggest thing, the most mind-blowing piece, is you took a, a profession that usually takes four or five years to really understand, to get to a high level. And you got it down to 16 hours through games? I can't wait to hear more. Um, Well, actually, we've been doing that for quite a while. I think you're talking about the project management study. That was done with hundreds of people. The research was funded by the National Science Foundation, and the Project Management Institute provided the people. But before that, what we've been working on is, you know, I'm a cognitive scientist, and I'm interested in how to accelerate expertise, basically. So let's talk a little bit about what an expert is. There's two models of learning out there in the world. And one is the sort of thing we deal with in school, which is, you know, open the top of your head, pour stuff in. And we call that kind of an acquisitional learning model. That's what a lot of school is based on. That's what a lot of online courses are based on. The idea that somebody could show you how to do something and you can acquire it by observation or through some kind of passive means. That type of learning has been around maybe in human history, and this is pushing it, maybe a thousand years. Probably for the average person, only a couple hundred years in human history. The type of learning that we tap into with our method has been around for 170,000 years. And, you know, the reason that's important is because the human race has not really evolved physically, biologically, like other species, like even, you know, alligators in 170,000 years. When we find the remains of people in caves and so on, the oldest remains that we find are really modern human beings at this point that are around that old. And so the question is, how is it that without evolving biologically, have we, are we so different from people who used to live in caves? And the question is that we have brains that are very plastic and we adapt through learning and acquiring unintuitive information, such as language. Language, you know, you're not born with your mother tongue. You acquire it. And whatever culture you're born into, you acquire that mother tongue very easily. And that's because you are genetically programmed to acquire things that you're not born with. Does that make sense? So what we do is we say, okay, how far does that go? I remember being a professor in the 90s and people being all up in arms about the internet. You know, I had email because I was a professor and I worked at IBM Labs, so I had email, but most people didn't have email. And most people, the average person, did not have access to the internet. 
And the feeling was among my colleagues that the internet should not be available to the average person, that they would need to go to school to learn how to use the internet or to computers. They would need to take um, a course, like a long course in how to use the internet, how to use computers, etc. And my father, who's in his 90s, uses a smartphone, never learned how, you know, never read the directions. There are no directions with smartphones anymore. And this is because we really actually very easily adapt to new technologies without any sort of schooling. That was the most interesting thing to me. So I started doing research on how people actually learn to do complicated things because how we've survived several ice ages as a species is that we actually are very good at quickly, quickly, quickly learning complicated things when we have to. But there's the key, when we have to. So I said, what if I set up situations where learning is not negotiable? And I got the idea when I was a graduate student, and I was charged with studying a factory that was implementing a very complex ERP system, which, again, was radical and new. And a lot of people thought that factory workers we're never going to learn this. We're going to have to get MBAs to work on the factory floor. It's too complicated. It radicalizes manufacturing, makes it possible to be multinational, but it's not for everybody. All these workers are going to be displaced. They're all going to be baggers in the supermarket. Party's over. What happened is this factory in North New York State, the owner died. And they were implementing ERP, and there was probably three generations of workers that had always worked for this factory. And the idea was you grow up and get a job at this factory, because both your parents and your grandparents had worked there. And it was just what you did. What I discovered was not only did they adapt to ERP instantly, but how they did it was incredibly creative. They used their knowledge of the products and the factory floor to implement ERP more successfully than most companies. So I was observing somebody who's a planner, and he's watching the stuff come in from the ERP system, which is basically the reports on how the big machines are working. You know, they made some sort of small commodity item that you buy in a, in a stationary store very cheap items. And he said, he picked up the phone and he called the guy on the factory floor. He said, better bring up the other machine because this one's about to go down. I said, how did you know that? He said, because this machine always slows down before it shuts down. And I see that the data coming in is coming in slower. So not only was he appropriating the ERP system for his own purposes, because that slowness is normally not observable but he was using it for his own ends, which is the data rates were slower, which was observable from ERP, and he could intuit that he needed to set up another machine. They were very successful, but the fact is that because the owner had died, if they didn't do this successfully, they would all lose their jobs and the factory would have to shut down. So I thought, well, this is kind of like an ice age. 
learning is non-negotiable. And they have all realized that we got to make this work or we're all out of a job. We're going to lose our contract with Walmart and we really need to stay in business. So I thought, well, this is really kind of fascinating. I did a number of projects, one with New York City Transit, where I took, again, ordinary workers, gamified it. I didn't gamify it there. That was a natural event, a natural ice age, right? A natural business ice age. But I created, I said to myself, you know, the brain might not know the difference. The brain, I said, this part of the brain that gets kicked in might be kind of primitive. You know, we haven't evolved. Maybe, you know, there was a sense of panic here that they really felt a threat at a ice age extinction level. And maybe we can create that in a game. And maybe that's why games are fun, because it's a safe way to experience danger. I started designing these gamification business games. And the way that ours were different than others is we created a threat. We said, you can win any way you want as long as you follow certain rules. But the goal is non-negotiable. There's no B+. You either win or you don't win. So for New York City Transit, we worked with all the maintenance people in the maintenance barn because the Federal Transit Administration said you have to implement cycle-based scheduled maintenance technology. End of story. They had already tried twice. The unionized workers threw the computers into the Hudson River. They had tried it with the clerks. The clerks couldn't learn it. So I said, the workers who touch the equipment all the time, the buses and the trains, they actually understand what the technology is managing. And just like the factory workers in North New York State, maybe they would be better at this than anybody else because they understand what the data is referring to and what the data means. And we can't fire them anyway because they're unionized. This is something we got to live with. So let's gamify it and let's tell them you can figure it out. You got to figure out how to cover all the, to do the, the maintenance, but you're not getting any new equipment, which was true back then. The new equipment was not arriving. So you have to increase the mean distance between failure of the equipment you have. You have to extend its life. And you have to figure out how to do that. And all the routes have to be covered. It's non-negotiable. No late buses or trains. No uncovered routes. Or you lose. One route not being covered, end game. Yes. We did this with 3,000 workers. And it was like it was like a religious conversion. They became... They realized that the answer to winning was in the data in the system. And they became extremely good at it in the gamified version and in real life. And they saved the properties hundreds of millions of dollars even before we completed the project because they figured out how to use the data, how to input the data, and how to use the data to increase the life of old equipment. I can't help but think in my head, this is why most sales training fails. Because, well, you had originally talked about that we only have the way of learning 
the acquisition over the past thousand years, but our, we've been built over the past 170,000 years and are just assuming it's going to work. Yeah. And then you talk about what there's the ice age. There's that survival instinct that you're kicking in. It almost makes me feel like when people ask, are salespeople born or made? Well, I think they, they get that assumption because they're somehow tapping into that past experience and they're just making it work. Or they're getting put in a situation where it's all or nothing. And then they learn really fast. They create their own emergency. Yeah. Yeah. And we never get that in sales training. There never is an emergency that we're working on. And half the time, you know, you're kind of there because you have to be. And it sounds like that is exactly why it never works. Right. And you never find out why it didn't work. And that's the other thing that we've done in our platform. Because before we were making these games, and they, it was a lot of it was very manual. In 2007, when Virtual Worlds came out, we said, wow, this is a dream come true for us. Because now we can use, I knew about agent-based technologies from my work at IBM in the late 80s. They were very new. They were very, just to give you how an idea of how far back I go, <laughs> We were working on voice recognition in the late 80s at IBM. Siri, you know, which is now everywhere, was under development then. So object-oriented systems were under development then, but didn't become commercially available until 2007. So virtual worlds, which are mainly used for entertainment, I said, there it is. There's what I worked on in the late 80s, and now I know what it can really do, which is these objects in these virtual worlds can be programmed to give people feedback on whether they did the right thing or not. That's not what they're used for in most virtual worlds, but I know they have that capability because I was there. So that's what we do. So now let's imagine a sales game. It's a virtual world. You go to a sales meeting. You're with NPCs. They're bots. And you have a choice about how you're going to manage them. There is a potential in the situation built in to get the big order. But there's also the potential to fail or to get the small order. And it's all in how you handle it. So you think it's going really well. They're going to buy. But then you get like a little notation We use colors because it works best with the primitive brain. And you get a red light. A red light tells you, you did not hit the mark. Even though you got the order, you didn't get the order that was there to get. Then you can open up your heads up display. You can click on it and you can see what, where your path went wrong. And what's even more fun is you can redo it. Mm, So you get so much more practice and so much more pattern recognition where normally that amount of practice would be over 30, 60, 90 plus days, but you're getting it in a matter of minutes. Right. And not only that, but you're getting to do it wrong first, which is very important from the brain's perspective. You need for the brain, you know how you fall, you slip, I don't know where you live, but if you fall and slip on the ice, you walk differently on the ice when you get back up. You don't do it the same way you kind of have to slip first to get that message. And I think that teaching people the right thing to do does not unteach them to not do the wrong thing. You have to do the wrong thing. And what I've noticed is that letting people do what they do intuitively or naturally, and then giving them that red light, the brain doesn't like that red light. 
doesn't like the yellow light. Our games are very fast-paced. We have 65 to 70 decisions in just a couple hours. So you go bang, 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 bang. And what we notice is after about 45 minutes, people get mostly green lights. Their adaptive unconscious adapts. Like what I'm doing is not working, and they start to automatically change their approach. Because the, the brain does not like to be wrong. It sees it as a threat to its survival. Teaching people what to do right, it just raises their hackles and makes them defensive. Letting them fail and face the consequences at a, in a rapid pace where they don't get a chance to reflect actually activates the whole brain and marshals it for really deep learning. I think this is why sales has changed is this exact point, Leah. When I first started, they let you fail because we were commission only. So if we failed, it was on us. There was no harm to the company where a lot of tech companies now because they're paid a great salary and because they have all these different tools and there's a, a high cost associated. It's almost like people always want to jump in and save them. Right. And I see those reps go downhill because they don't actually know the consequences of actions, but they also don't, it's like, like you were saying, slipping on the ice, the thing that popped to my brain was riding your bike on gravel. Right. You can tell who's been experienced because of how they change their body position. Well, sales is no different. When you listen to how they talk in a conversation, you're like, this isn't something they've done before. Or this is outside of their comfort zone. They don't have the confidence that they're carrying in because they've been through it before. Exactly. Exactly. And they don't know how to read the situation. And so... Would that be considered an evil learning environment? I know that in Comic-Con, they had talked about it a little bit of, I found it really fascinating and like parenting. And there's so many different parallels that we see all around us. But when you learn, but you never see the results of your actions, is that truly evil? It depends. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, evil is a, is a loaded word. It, it definitely teaches people that they, it definitely biases the brain to not learn, I think. I was thinking about this when I was watching two mothers with their babies. The babies are about the same age. They're about six months old. And one mother, the baby is, she's trying to learn how to crawl. And the mother is not helping her. In fact, she's moving the toy further away. And the baby's not getting frustrated. She's trying different things. She's trying swimming towards the toy. She's trying rocking towards the toy. She's trying rolling towards the toy. But she's into the process of trying different things. She's kind of in the zone. And her mother is just sitting there saying, you know, you could do it, you know, and not helping her at all. The other mother is saying, do you need help? Here's the toy. And I'm like, all she's teaching this baby is to cry. And the other baby is not only learning to crawl, but she's learning that it's okay to experiment with her environment, her body. But what's not negotiable is she wants that toy. And she's learning to set a goal and work all sorts of angles to see what's going to get her there. And I watched another video of this baby and she's now trying to learn to walk. So her mother set up all these things in her environment so that she could grab onto them and pull herself up. And the baby discovered she could look out the window if she grabbed higher things. So now she's crawling up and, you know, 
she's organizing, trying to get her her own environment. Like she's pushing things over against the couch so she can get up on the couch and stand on the back of it. And I thought now she's using tools to extend what she's learned to do. And she's six months old. I mean, this is amazing. But this is exactly what we should all be doing in sales, in leadership, et cetera, is letting people, giving them psychologically safe ways to fail. And that's what's nice about gamification, because unfortunately, it is very risky to let people fail in a big way in business because the deals are so big now. But in gamification, you can lose $300 million and say, wow, I won't do that again. And it can feel very, you know, I mean, I've been in virtual worlds in virtual minds and fallen off a high ledge and I'm an avatar, but I feel it as if I'm really falling. Your brain can really be tricked into really being there if the world is designed properly. Yes, it's no different than storytelling. When you tell a great story, it impacts the same parts of your brain when you're using verbs to go and describe the actions or, you know, visual when you're describing colors, it really taps in. So as you're telling that narrative and taking them through that experience, it is walking them through. Yeah. Well, David Eagleman, who, you know, did a whole series on the brain, said at one point as a kind of teasing footnote Maybe what we do, I mean, you think about the world, right? It comes in through two little pinpricks in our eyes and a couple of other senses, and we really construct the rest in our brains. Maybe we're always living in a simulated world. We just create it in our heads. So we're actually predisposed to learn and experience well-designed virtual worlds as if they're real and learn from them. Oh, that's an interesting thought. And actually, we pay a lot of attention to that when we design our worlds. We've actually done studies with EEGs to see, are we getting full brain engagement, including the motor cortex? Do people feel like they're there? Because a lot of so-called online games, only the prefrontal cortex and the left hemisphere are engaged. And it's not the same. Interesting, because you don't have that full... You're either emotional or you're logical, but you're not both. So it's not bringing that contextualization that makes it stick. Yeah, you're not there. It's not like you experienced it. The one thing I found really interesting, we were talking about in the pre-show and we were kind of joking is like old dogs can learn new tricks and actually a heck of a lot faster than novices. Why is that? Well, let's go back to the factory workers and the transit workers, right? They had so much more content. Once the, the experiences of the gamification helped them unlearn their habits and gave them a goal where they had to marshal all of their resources to come up with a new approach in order to win, they had a lot more to work with to think up new ideas. They had a lot more content. Novices don't really have a lot of content. They're really at the empty closet stage of their careers. So we know that the highest level of expert can invent a solution that nobody's ever had experienced before. In order to do that, they have to have stored enough exemplars, enough to have a first principles understanding of the domain. 
you really have to have a lot of content to infer those underlying principles. So think about the factory worker who knew what the machine was going to do by the way the data were coming in, right? He understood all these things at the first principles level. Supply chain, movement of material, machines making stuff. And so having ERP just made him more powerful at what he already understood. If you can do that, now a person who's never been in a factory wouldn't even be able to read the data. They would just be able to say, oh, I learned that at school. That's a report. You know, they might not notice the data are slowing down. Yeah, they can't see the spot, the trends that connects the dots. I think you had mentioned something too about so many jobs right now becoming so complex and chaotic and that people feel like they're going to be redundant soon. And you had made this point that it's actually going to be easier than ever because they can be repurposed because they have that knowledge, that data that they can just transfer if somebody just takes the time to help them. Right. I mean, one of the regrets I have about FutureView is that it's mostly sold to senior managers. We've done some amazing things. We've taken $30 billion companies and doubled their their stock price and market cap by working with like the top 50 people with FutureView. We really need to be pushing this down to everybody. Everybody has the same kind of human brain. And there's no reason why uh, FutureView should not be used by every, or, you know, that learning model should not be used by everybody. Because when it is, and we've done several studies and experiments where so-called Non, you know, elite people are using it. They adapt to the changes in their jobs much more quickly. They don't have to go back to school. They're not made redundant. They don't have to be afraid. They don't have to have the anxiety of not being able to keep up. Their years of experience becomes valuable instead of a problem. And um, we saw that with the factory workers, with the transit workers, with project managers. We did a study with them and we found out that we could accelerate them to having five years of experience with 16 hours of gameplay. And we never met them. I mean, they were just people all over the world playing our game. And that, I think, is the future of this method of gamification. And I would love to see it used in sales. Because I think sales is probably the most brutal of all of these professions and yet critically important to the success of companies. And I feel like the way they've divvied up sales, we were kind of joking earlier about evil learning environments, and they they split it up so you don't see the cause and effect. And so how do you know that you're on track? Because there is no figurative red light, yellow light, green light. How do you know you're on track and what you're doing is actually the best course of actions when you never see the results? Well, and I think it's worse than that. When I talk to salespeople, they not only are very insecure when they're successful, because they don't know why they're successful, but they think they've got some sort of luckiness or trick. So even the people that are successful don't even know what it is they're doing right. And they don't know how to continue to hone and develop their craft because just like anything else, whatever they're doing will probably become outdated and they need to continue to refine their approach. 
Does that mean we can expect a, a gamified uh, sales environment from you soon? If somebody's got to pay us for it, but yes, I, you know, we actually did talk to a couple of companies about it. And I think there's, you know, maybe salespeople are the redheaded stepchildren of the organization. They don't necessarily um, want to invest in that, but they ought to. We talked to Sandler Learning. They weren't ready for something quite so radical. <laughs> but if I can be cynical for a moment, I think a lot of sales training people get make a lot of money selling coursework or courseware that doesn't work. You know, our stuff is, it's kind of like if you're selling, making a lot of money, treating cancer, why cure it? If you use our gamification, it would work quickly. It would be less expensive. You would not have to do it over and over again and spend a lot of money. And that I could see where that would be threatening. Just to shift gears slightly for the last little bit here, there's sales managers that are listening. There's sales leaders that are listening. Of course, the sales reps that are struggling and they're, they're trying to do their best. How can we create a better environment for sellers to accelerate their expertise? What are some tips that we could do today? I'm not really sure. Um, I know that there's got to be a way to give sellers more feedback on what could have happened and what they're doing right and what they're not doing right. I believe sales has to not be a bag of tricks. Sales is really listening to people and understanding um, what they need. You know, I'll give you an example. Because I'm not a complete unknown person, sometimes when people want to possibly purchase what we do, I'll get on the call with them and, you know, 10 years ago, I'd have to explain who I was and sell them something. Now I just say, you know, let's not do that. You can look up who I am and you can read about what we do. Just tell me who you are and what's going on at your company. Just tell me what's up. Let's just talk. I think if a lot of people did that, they would sell a lot more because people who want to buy something have a problem and they want to talk about it. And I think if salespeople could just be better listeners and not jump in with an answer, but just try to really understand the problem the person's having, and even if it meant sending them to someone else who might be a better solution, they would get a better a reputation that people would come to them. I wonder if maybe even like running simulations, we call it role play, we'll do role plays within the org. But I'm wondering if the role plays are too simplistic. Probably. Or too harsh. Because I know a lot of times they'll, people will try to go in, it's a game, they'll try to make somebody look silly. And I'm wondering if actually what it is, is that we need to do bigger role plays with more, like even though you were just saying problems. So there's more key problems that they have to identify in a 10 minute stretch or a five minute stretch and then keep doing that replay. And then I don't know the one, I think one hard part is like, what's on the line? What's, what's the gamification of it? I was going to say, I think that a lot of role play is missing the non-negotiable goal. We did a role play with a large technology company. And I said, what's the biggest sale that the customer could have? I need that. I don't want people to just go in and practice appropriate discussions. People can do that in charm school. I want to know what's the biggest nut that could be gotten if they did everything right. That nut has to be there. And it has to be there in a real way. Like the customer has to have a problem, 
that they would pay $500,000 for to get it solved. And through a discovery and listening process, the salesperson has to find that nut. But they also have a smaller nut, a $50,000 nut. And if the salesperson doesn't listen or ask the right question, he gets that sale. That's the role play that needs to take place. And you can script that, you know, and the person who's the actor, who's the buyer, could have the problem that they would pay a lot of money to solve. But the seller has to find it like a treasure hunt and convince the buyer that their product could solve it. I just think of how impactful that would be running that from very start of the sale over an hour and like having all the different divisions working in unison, like how are you running your mining projects where they, it was a group activity and they were red light, yellow light, green light and get everybody on board and have somebody playing almost like referee or like, what do you call it? The war games where they're being scored Yeah. or even have it. Would you do that as teams? Like have teams compete against each other too? And like, it's all or nothing or is it better? Yeah. Okay. That works, you know, or the team could approach the customer as a team. What's our strategy for this customer? What did you hear him say? What do you think we missed? It makes it more psychologically safe. Huh. Giving me a lot to chew on. And I. it's nice to hear a different point of view and not talking about why sales is failing, but really looking at the way we learn so we can make, you know, embrace play and learn in a safer, more dynamic environment that actually has an impact. Because I agree. I work with, all, and I'm not going to say that the sales trainers I work with are bad. The ones that are good create these environments where it's a team atmosphere. And I can see why a lot of people don't because they just come in, they talk at you for two days, and then you leave and there's nothing, nobody remembers anything. Right. Because they already have a theory that they think will work and the new one does not have a place to live. So with all of that you've done, and you guys are always working on new, amazing things, if we took a glimpse into the future, do you think there's anything that we're going to see? Like people talk about meta, they talk about more AI in our lives and more connected. What do you think the world's going to look like in five years or 10 years, if you had to take a guess? Well, what is it going to look like or what, what do I hope it looks like? I mean, I would like to see... Human beings can only manipulate three concepts in their heads at one time. It's our limitation. So as much as we haven't evolved, we haven't evolved, right? We're very adaptive, but we haven't evolved. So what technologies do for us is they extend our cognition. We're all smarter with a smartphone. We're all smarter with Google, right? I think that metaverse, if it's, you know, particularly what we're tuning up our metaverse to do is make people smarter by giving them more cognitive space to think about difficult things so that they can transform not three things in their head, but many more things outside of themselves as if it is in their head, extend their cognitive space. So think about when you have something difficult you're working on and you're trying to explain it to somebody else. You might take the salt shaker and you might take the pepper shaker and rearrange things on a table and say, now imagine this is this, this is this. Well, we all externalize our thinking when we're doing something complicated. What if we had a virtual world that was easy to manipulate 
you know, kind of like Minecraft on crack, right? That we could solve extremely difficult problems and it had an AI backend to give us feedback on whether or not we were going in the right direction or not thinking of everything. Red, yellow, green. That I think would make us very powerful, solve very wicked problems and would accelerate the expertise of the average person by quite a bit, exponentially, I think. And children leaving school would be ready to tackle the world without the stress and anxiety that they have now. Yeah, I think so. And I think that it really has to happen because, you know, the world is already a million times more complicated than it was in 1975. And what's remarkable is that we've adapted as well as we have. I don't think my father had a computer before he was 75. And now it's like he's always had one, you know. If I want to see him, I send him a meeting invite in Outlook. <laughs> and he's in his 90s, right? And I don't think he's remarkable. I think this is the way people are. So I think we have to pay attention not to what we fear people can't do, but what we see that they've done. And we have to say, how can we push the envelope on this? Let's assume people are amazing, that they actually have, the average person has superpowers we don't even know about. How can we use the metaverse to maximize that? Love it. Great. That is a future that I want to live in and happy to do my part in any way that we can support you. And the listeners now are wondering, Leo, how can they get a hold of you if they have you know, maybe a connection for you in the sales world to go and get this, maybe Salesforce to buy this or Microsoft or... You know, they just want to go and follow your thought-leading content. Where can they go and find you and follow? Well, there, our website is um, futureviewplatform.com. And my email is ldebello at futureviewplatform.com. And, you know, our whole group and our CEO is Neil Sahota. He's, uh, I think, Neil Sahota at futureviewplatform.com. We're all pretty easy to reach. And there's an info button on our website. And we would get back to anybody who contacted us. I think we're giving three or four speeches this fall at various conferences. And there is a, a, a UN metaverse speech that I gave at a panel. And I think there's another one coming up in Geneva. So we're out there. We're easy to find. And we, we're very happy to talk to people who contact us. We talked to you when you contacted us. <laughs> yes, you were... Very helpful and very warm. And everyone, if you're taking Lee up on this, please be respectful. Make sure you give her some context <laughs> and that you're not just trying to pitch in the email. Ask a great question. Give her some context and maybe you'll leave with a business problem. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, this was fun. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I need to go and rewatch this about seven more times and take notes furiously because you have given me so much to think about, and I'm sure the listeners agree. Thank you so much, Leah. Really appreciate your time. Did you love today's episode? Subscribe now to have our three weekly episodes waiting for you. And if you really like our content, please leave a five-star review. But if you're not ready to give us a review, check out another episode and follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to win you over. See you next time. See you next time.